with you. Open up to <clears throat> Psalm 78. That's where we'll be taking a look tonight. As we <clears throat> work our way through the 78th Psalm, one of the things that uh, that I think it it's going to uh, emphasize for us is something that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is... <clears throat> Paul begins to speak about the brokenness of man, uh, man's sinfulness, his fallenness, his separation from God. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, the Jew first, And also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What are they suppressing? Verse 19, because what may be known of God is... shown to them for God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their hearts their foolish hearts were darkened and professing to be wise they became fools. The scripture lays out for us that the condemnation of mankind is not that there's not evidence of God, not that it's not that man doesn't know or can't understand or realize or recognize that God exists. What the word of God tells us is that that God is known to all men. And what man does is suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Man loves his sin. He pushes down the truth. So I've discussed it like this before. Uh, there <clears throat> several times in the last 20 years of ministry where where I have spoke to one person or another who's caught up in a, a cult or an ism, some type of false teaching or another. And as they're caught up in this, what happens is ultimately in our discussion, we come to a point where the reality is they like where they're at. They like the way life is going and what's happening and the circumstances that they have. It's almost as though they sat back and said, here are my desires in my hand. And I'm going to look around for something that's going to help me meet these desires. And when they find that thing, there it is, it's this. Whatever whatever cultism, teaching, whether it's somebody on TBN or some something else that is in opposition to Christ, they will go headlong after it, not because they're finding Christ but because they're getting what they want. Whether it's relationships, whether it's money, whether it's work, whether it's jobs, it doesn't make any difference. <coughs> it's not that they care about the truth or that their goal is the truth. Their goal is their desire. And <clears throat> the Bible teaches us that in Genesis chapter 3, <clears throat> when Adam and Eve fell, that man fell with him. And as a result, 
man's desires are fallen desires. Right? You ever recognize that within yourself? That you want things you shouldn't want? That you desire things that are not good for you or, or, or are, are sinful? That's my, I want it. I, I, can, I can pretend that I don't feel that way, but the reality is I have those desires. What does that indicate? I'm a fallen man. That sin has stained every part of my being. My reasoning. My emotions. How I feel. What I desire. Sin stains it all. See what the word of God tells us is that the gospel, the good news that Christ offers to us is the power of God to salvation. The power of God to overcome our desires. The power of God to overcome the fallen nature in man but there's only one way we receive it it's not a magic thing where you stand up in church and you said a particular prayer a particular way and that that did it for you the way we receive it is to go before god fallen broken and repent and believe The, the bible never gives us a formula you guys with me so far doesn't give us a formula. What's required is man's repentance. In other words, man saying to God, I'm messed up. I'm a mess. I got problems. I want the things I shouldn't want. And I know that. And you're my only hope. So I'm going to turn from that stuff. I I want you (coughs) more than I want that. Now, you may have to say that over and over again in life's journey because those things are going to come up. But the Word of God tells us that when God grants a man repentance and he comes and, and bears his heart, the Lord says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, right? Anybody who calls, Lord, save me. What's God promised to do? Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But that's how we do it. In an attitude of brokenness. I'm I'm broken. I'm a mess. And in Psalm 78, what you have is the history of the nation of Israel struggling with exactly what we just talked about. And you're going to see when we look at it, it's not lack of evidence. Israel, remember we're going to talk about the parting of the Red Sea. It's kind of hard to stand at the parting of the Red Sea and say there's no God. Right? If you were there. If you were there and you saw the sea part. What the scientists today want to tell us that the wind blew really hard and did that. I've been a lot of places where the wind's blowing hard, never seen it stop anything. Never seen it stop up a creek so I could walk across without getting wet. No. If you were there, you had evidence, right? But the problem is we're going to see in the hearts of the of the Israelites, just like in the hearts of us, no difference. The question isn't ever about evidence. It's about, am I willing to surrender to God most high or not? And the struggle with my desires opposed to his. <coughs> and that's what Psalm 78 lays out for us. So, let's kick it off. In Psalm 78, he begins this way. Contemplation of Asaph, he says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Now, when we see that phrase, I don't want it to, to mess you up. So, in Hebrew, Hebrew is kind of a, a unique language. In Hebrew... Uh, especially in the ancient Hebrew, it was, it's all consonants. If you ever spend any time looking up Hebrew words, you're going to see all consonants, no vowels, because that's how they wrote it. All consonants, no vowels. Uh, 
Hebrew people understood what the vowels were. Us, 2,000 years later, it's a little more of a challenge. But nonetheless, we're able to do it. Work our way through the text. When it says, Oh my people, listen, give ear to my law. The word is Torah. Torah is the title of the first five books of the Bible. It's what's called the law. But what the word Torah means is instruction. So you got a guy, Asaph, standing before the people, thinking about all their history of rebellion against God. And he's saying, look, look, give me your ears. I, I want you guys to listen. I want you to hear my instruction. I want you to, I want you to hear the lesson I'm going to give. Now it's all going to come out of the law. <coughs> it's all going to come out of the Torah, the stories that he tells. But the idea is we got to have ears to hear, right? Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And at the end of every one of those letters, he says the same thing. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why do you suppose he says that? Now, if you've ever had a child, you don't have to ask that question. You ever said, spoke to your child and you know he's not listening to you? It's like, I, I lay out this great lecture to my kids, was really good, had all the points, I, I wasn't freaking out, spitting, doing any of that stuff. <coughs> and I think I should stop at the end and say, if you have ears to hear, but if you don't, what happens? I just waste my breath. So he's saying, I need you to, to say, I want to have ears to hear. I want to hear, I, I want you guys to hear what I'm trying to say to you, so that you can learn from instruction. So that you can be wise men, so you can grow. Look what he says. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Right? We've all said that at one time or another to somebody that we're trying to encourage or teach or reprimand. Yes. Listen to the words that are coming out of my lips. Does that sound familiar? Same kind of idea. Same kind of idea. He says, I will open my mouth in a, in a parable. That Hebrew word is the same word for proverb. So I'm going to give you wise sayings. I'm going to lay out a series of wise sayings. And then he goes on, I will utter dark sayings of old. That phrase, dark sayings, is, is like riddles. So I'm going to lay out for you proverbs and riddles. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a mystery about these people who, who spent a lot of time hearing and never listening. In Isaiah chapter 6, <coughs> the Bible tells us that at that point in Isaiah's life, King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was like this great king. So if you want to bring it into something like that we can, we can experience this like, uh, the end for me, the end of the Ronald Reagan years. <laughs> I'm an old guy. What can I say? But uh, similar to that, you have this. You have this really good leader. Things seem like they're going pretty good. Now you might disagree with me. It's okay. Seems th things seem to be going really good. Well, during the reign of Uzziah, it was hard for the people to see the Lord because they saw Uzziah. So in, I, in Isaiah chapter six, it says, "In the year that King Uzziah died." Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he stands before God, and he says, woe is me, because I'm a broken man. I'm a, this Jackie paraphrase, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. So God sends a, 
uh, an angel to take a coal from the throne. And he takes that coal from around the throne and he walks over to, to Isaiah and he touches his lips and he says, your sins are purged. He's, it's an it's a, it's a illustration of God's forgiveness of our failures, of our brokenness. <clears throat> Does anybody get saved without that? Yeah, if God don't forgive us, we're hung, right? So we don't earn any of that. So he goes and touches his lips. And then God says, who will go for us? Who will go talk to this people? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And you know what God says next? Go. Go talk to them. But seeing, they won't see. And hearing, they won't perceive. Their hearts are hard. And no matter how much you speak, it doesn't penetrate. They're in a place of rebellion. But God says, go. <coughs> go tell them. Go say these things. Go tell them all, all this truth anyways. Because ultimately they're held responsible for not, willing, not having a, a willing ears. Not having a willing heart. Is it? What do we do to get a heart? If, if our hearts are hard, what do we do to get a heart so that we can perceive and understand? We repent. Where's that, where's that heart of flesh? Ezekiel said, God said, I will give you a heart of flesh. I will replace your heart of stone. I, God does it. So all it requires from you and I is a willingness to repent. What's the key thing in repentance? The key thing in repentance is laying down my sin. Now what did we read in Romans chapter 1? What's the one thing people don't want to do? They don't want to lay down their sin. So instead of coming to God and laying down their sin, they just suppress the truth and they live in their unrighteousness. So we see it in Isaiah 6. We see it here in Psalm 78. The <coughs> Asaph saying, you've got to have ears to hear. He says in verse 3, these things uh, which we have heard and known. So what I want you to understand when he talks about the Proverbs and the riddles or the dark sayings, He's not saying these are things you never heard before. Okay, he's going to rehearse their whole history. It'd be like going back to school and, and hearing about uh, the Revolutionary War. We've all heard that before. That's not new. That's the same thing he's saying. Look, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you these things. I'm going to share these things with you. But they're not new. We have heard them and we've known them. And our fathers have told us. One of the things that God commanded his people to do with their children was to teach them this is what god said in deuteronomy chapter 6 he said teach these things to your children everywhere you go whatever you do never stop so when <clears throat> when god lays that out the the relationship between god and his people and god's requirements wasn't something that a family put on somebody else it was something that God put specifically on the fathers. Teach your children. Teach them about me. And do it all the time, wherever you are. You know, there's some, there's some great teaching moments. There's some that aren't so great teaching moments, but there are great teaching moments. You can go out with your family, you're hanging out, something happens, you got a great opportunity to share the truth of God through something that maybe the family just experienced or something they went through. And this is what God is saying. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, all the time, wherever you find yourself, teach these things to your kids. 
So this is what he's saying. Asaph's saying, our fathers told us. We know these stories. We know them. Our fathers told us all about it. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. So passing on, right? The knowledge of the Lord. What God has done. And really, generation after generation after generation does this. In, in, in the church today, we do it. People bear witness. They share testimony. You hear people's stories about what God did or how God moved or acted in their life. We, we hear things when we gather together, when we share with one another. It's the same kind of a concept. To, to constantly be sharing about the goodness of God and, and what God has done. Because what happens to us, guys, is we move from a God-centered reality to a man-centered reality. I can always tell when that happens for me. Because me-itis comes in. And it's all about how everything affects me. Well, this is not good for me. And this is, not, this is a problem for me. And I don't like this. And I, don't, and I recognize what's, what's occurring is now I'm in the center of my world. And I'm out of place. God's supposed to be in the center of my world. And He needs to be in that, centered, that place centered. And when He is, then we can always remember his faithfulness to us, to others, to the, to the uh, men and women of old <coughs> as we study his word. So he goes on. Let's learn from history. Verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. So he's saying, look, God's, God's given us this stuff. Guys, God gave it. He gave it to, to Jacob. He established a testimony in Jacob. Jacob, I love it that God always says, I'm not ashamed to be known as the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Because you can't find one of those three guys that was not a mess. Abraham was a mess, lied twice, that, that his wife was his sister, and some other guy took her and was going to make her his own, and he was just, you know, afraid and hiding back somewhere else. And God intervened and and stop that from happening and then his son Isaac did the exact same thing what do we call that the sins of the father passed to the son right we he learned the he learned from his dad i teach my kids a lot of bad things i can watch when my kids were little them have a little hissy fit and i see my temper in them and go oh look at that i never had to sit down and give them one lesson here's how you lose your temper Somehow they got that, boom, it was just in them. So Isaac learned it. Then when we have Jacob, Jacob, he, he becomes a great deceiver, right? Lying, cheating, you know, his entire life. But God says, I'm not ashamed to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I gave my testimony to Jacob. God is, is never about what you and I bring to the table that makes God come alongside and say, yes, I'm your God. It's not what's great in you, it's what's great in Him. It's not what we bring, it's what God, how God is. God is compassionate, long-suffering, desiring that none would perish. Right now what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9? He doesn't want anybody to perish, but that all would come to repentance. So His desire is to is to share to shadow us with with that incredible grace and we want to be able to respond to that so he says i have a testimony in jacob and a law in israel 
which he commanded our fathers. So he told our fathers. <coughs> Remember, Asaph's talking. God told our fathers. He told us all these things. We know it's true. For what purpose? That they should make them known to their children. So again, we come to the point. Fathers were supposed to pass on these stories to their children. So that their children would grow and learn and understand the truth of who God is and what God's done. That's still uh, how we ought to be today. That still should be our concern as we serve the Lord today. That we would make these things known to the children. That the generation to come might know them. So the goal is that we're passing on this information of, of God. And what God desires. What God wants. What God's looking for. The children who would be born. That they may arise and declare them to their children. So generation passes it on to generation. Passes it on to generation. For what purpose? Verse 7. That they may set their hope. Where? In God. That they may set their hope in God. A lot of people hoping a lot of things. There's a lot of people in the next couple of years going to be hoping for a new Messiah. Right? Isn't that what we're going to the, to the polls to do? Isn't that why we sit, turn on the news and watch the latest debate? And who said what and what's going on? What are we looking for? A Messiah, a deliverer, somebody who's going to get us out of the whatever mess we perceive our world to be in. The problem is we already have a Messiah. And he's already king. And if his people would start acting like that is true, you might see things begin to change in our own world. But the problem is, <coughs> we may know it here, but we don't live it here. We got it in a head. We got to find a way to move it 12 inches and get it as something that's in our heart so that we would put our hope in God. Our hope in God. My hope is not in my six hour. My 45. That's not, that's not where my hope is. That may be a tool I use one day, but that's not my hope. My hope is not in my AR. My hope is in God. All those things may be tools, but God can deliver without any of them, can He? So we live in, currently in a, in a state of fear. There's a lot of fear-mongering going on. A lot of fear-mongering happening on the news. A lot of fear-mongering going on in the church. People are afraid of the things that are coming. You may find yourself on one side or the other of the dispute. It doesn't matter to me. All I know is there are lost people here in Buell, Filer, Castleford, Twin, that need Jesus. And God's given me one job. To go to how many nations? Oh, that's going to be a problem for us, isn't it? Go to every nation. All nations. Making what? Disciples. So he didn't tell me to get all worked up. Be afraid about what's going to happen. We, do, we, do we really have any control, guys? I mean, let's face it. Do we have any control? You stomp, get yourself worked up, and scream and holler and yell. And you can vote and, and do all the stuff you want to do. What's going to happen is going to happen. And that's not the things God told me to do. What did he tell me to do? Take the gospel. What is going to change? What would change our, the horizon that maybe looks very negative and, and a lot of scary things maybe on the horizon for us? What will change that? Me carrying on? What will change that? What if I take the gospel to the lost? 
could that change the horizon? Could that change the future for my kids? Or my grandkids? Or I could get caught up in and just sitting back and hoping a Messiah will come and fix it all. And one day Jesus will. But that's not what he told me to do. He didn't say, Jackie, I'm leaving you here till I return. <clears throat> so you could do nothing until I return. But that, that's not what it says. Right? Go. Tell. Go. Tell. Share. Go. This is, what, this is the big <clears throat> problem for them. Way back then. And it's still the problem for us today. There's a generation today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord. How come they don't know? The church didn't do their job. Fathers didn't do their job. People didn't spread the word. Things didn't happen. We find ourselves in a place just like Israel. We're no different. We want to be able to pass it that their hope may be in God. And that they would not forget the works of God. That they would not forget the works of God. That they would not forget what God has done for us. That they would not forget the power that is in God. That they would not forget that He is God and we're not. That we would not forget where our position is in terms of God. Where's my position? It's certainly not above Him, is it? So, we say that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. And what's that other phrase? King of Kings, you guys heard that before? Lord of Lords, King of Kings. What's that mean? We're so far removed from a sovereign. Do we understand what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord? Because Jesus said, why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do the things I say? What's the, what's the purpose of the sovereign? On the sovereign, I surrender to them. The sovereign rules. I just present myself to them a servant. What can I do? What's my part? That should be our relationship with God. Not the giant Santa Claus in, in heaven that we snap our fingers and say, Hey, Lord, you know, aren't you know, you not paying attention? I can't pay my bill today. Nope. It should be flipped. Hey, Lord, I'm here to serve you. Whatever. If I can't pay it, I can't pay it. You're the sovereign. You're my king. You're my Lord. Surrender to him. <clears throat> the end of verse 7 that we would not forget his works, but that we would keep his commandments. I just want you to hear this. And that word keep, and we've talked about it a few times, I just want you to, to also consider the word treasure. Value. You get what I'm saying? Sometimes when we think about keep, we think about perfect performance. That's, that's not going to happen. Do you treasure or value God's commandments? Or do you devalue his commandments? There are things we don't... We don't have to argue about the areas that people argue about. We can just go to the plain and simple ones. Right? There's enough in God's word to just tell us that we know, yeah, this is, this is what God, how God wants me to live. There's no question. There's no if, ands, or buts. That's what it says. Do I value what God has told me in his word? Will you keep his commandments? Hold them. Treasure them. Value them. Because what you value, you'll do. What you don't value, you won't.
So this is the heart of the people that they would have their hope in God, not forget his works, his power, his majesty, and keep or treasure his commandments. In verse 8, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You're going to hear a phrase several times in Psalm 78 that says they're going to talk about all these things that God did, and then it's going to say, but the people did not believe in him. But the people did not believe in him. And it's a, it's a difficult concept to kind of wrap our mind around, but what what's being said there is that the people were not loyal. They, they, their hearts didn't belong to him. But God did all this stuff for him, and he showed himself in all these ways, but the people weren't loyal to him. They were loyal to self, but they weren't loyal to him. They weren't loyal to him. And it's wrapped up there at the end. And whose spirit was not, what? Faithful to God. Their spirit is not faithful to God. It's like God chose them on his team, but they're not really on God's team. They're just kind of doing their own thing. <coughs> their spirit is not faithful to God. In verse 9, he begins, The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows. So he's using a phrase, the children of Ephraim, the biggest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, so he's talking about Israel. And he says, <coughs> they're carrying bows. They turn back in the day of battle. So they're coming to battle. They've got all this stuff, but they're, they're not able to stand. They're not able to stand. Why? They did not keep the covenant of God. They didn't keep their promise to God. They didn't keep the covenant that God made to them. God said, if you this, then I that. If you love me with all your heart, then I will be your God. You will be my people. The, the, the covenants, the promises that God gave, they, they didn't keep them. Remember what I told you about keep? What did I tell you about keep? Don't think about perfect performance. Think about what? Value. They don't value God's covenant. They don't treasure God's promises. They don't care. They refuse to walk in His law. That's the word Torah again. They, they refuse to walk in God's instruction. So they, don't, they didn't treasure His, his promises and they don't want to <coughs> walk in His instruction. The things that His word lays out for us. And what's it say? And they forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Now, can you imagine that? Remember I told you Red Sea? Part, crazy, walk across, big, bad, crazy army chasing me. I'm a little uptight. What's going to happen as soon as I get across? The river, the Red Sea closes up on the army and the battle's over. I never had to do a thing. Can you imagine forgetting that? That's, to me, mind-boggling that, that we would forget about that. But there are s similar ways that God moves in our lives that we forget about. We go to the Lord in prayer and, and God shows up and He answers our prayer. And he meets us at a time when we're really needing to see an expression from the Lord in our lives. 
and then God moves and we have that expression and we're walking with the Lord and things in our lives are lined out and things are going good and it's all coming together. But then we get a little time under our belt and we forget about how God met us there and what things were like then and, and the experience that we had. And it's just gone. And that's what's happening to them. They forget. In verse 12, he's going to talk about the works they're forgetting. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zom. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. So that's the dividing of the, of the Red Sea, right? The parting of the sea. He made the water stand up like a heap, if you can picture that. A wall of water that's not moving. Pretty in, incredible. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud. Remember, every day a cloud would come out and tell the people where to go. It says, and at the night with a light of fire. So he had a pillar of fire, a cloud by a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. So they had the presence of God with them always, right? There was always that physical representation of the presence of God. But remember, it wasn't about evidence. What was it about? My own desires, my my twisted wants that that lead me to a place where I want to relish in my sin and not hold tight to the Lord. And that's what he's laying out for him. Look, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused water to run down like rivers. The people got thirsty. No water in the desert. I, I crack up. When Kathy and I first came to Idaho, people call this a desert. I still hear people call it a desert. And I laugh. I'll laugh right in their face. This is a desert. No, you don't know what a desert looks like, but I'll take you to one. I have not took anybody yet to where I came from that didn't say, why do anybody live in this God-forsaken wilderness? Because the desert I came from is sand and cactus. And there ain't no water. You drive around all day hoping to find water. No water. You can drill a well all the way to the center of the earth. Guess what you'll find? No water. Where does the water come from? Colorado River. It's piped in. It don't have its own water. No, when I say no water, I really mean no water. In fact, no grass. Why? Because it requires water. There's no water, no grass. <coughs> so you're there. There you get an idea of what it's like to say when I got when I first got here I come up in the in the springtime the canals were all running and I'm driving around and I'm like oh you gotta be kidding me I'm, I'm moving to paradise everywhere I look there's water and people would say that's not really water that's canal water I don't know what you're talking about but that water looks pretty good from where I come from I still feel that way I see that canal water run and I think oh man Let's go swimming. <clears throat> Maybe that's not so good. I don't know. But anyways, God gave them water in the desert, straight out of the rocks. He just opened up the rocks so they could have it. But look what it says in verse 17. But they sinned even more against him. They sinned even more. What, by How? What did they do? <clears throat> by re rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. So here they're going out in the desert. God's giving them water when they need water. 
Every day they got manna, right? He's going to talk about that in a little while. <coughs> they got everything they want, but what was it that the people were hung up on? Their own desire. I'm out in the desert, and God, there's God, there's God. Look, I see him every day. It's a, there's a pillar of fire leading us. There's a cloud. There's God. I see God all the time. I'm thirsty. A rock opens up, and water comes out. There's, there's plenty of evidence of God all around, but what's my problem? I want meat. I want something that God's not giving me. And because I want something that God's not giving me, I don't want God. I'm mad God's not, he's not doing what I want. Oops, what just happened when I do that? I took God out of the middle and where'd I put me? I put me there. Right there on God's throne. God's not giving me what I want. Remember I told you what about our desires? What's the Bible teach us about our desires are, are tainted by sin, right? So our desires are sinful. Can we trust our desires? Nope. Our desires are tainted by sin. The only way we can trust our desires is if they are surrendered to God. Then we can trust our desires. Otherwise, man, we want to come before the Lord. We want to say, no, that's not, that's not what I want. So they're in rebellion and they test God. And it says they spoke against God and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? So God's given them all this stuff. And they are not satisfied. They are not thankful. They are discontent. It's like looking at God and saying, yeah, you're not enough for me. It's not enough. I want more. Then maybe. So what am I relying on when I do that? I'm relying on my twisted reason my broken understanding I'm relying on me now what I should know about the fall of man is that I am a mess I can't be trusted I can't think straight apart from God I can't even understand I can't have knowledge I can't have any of those things that are necessary for me to reason about the condition of my world so I need God so that I can do all those things so that I can understand those things. I need Him. Well, that's the problem. They, they don't want Him. Behold, He struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can He provide meat for His people? It says, what have you done for me lately? Well, yeah, you give us water. That's cool. And you give us bread. That's all right. But really... Until you've given us meat, you really haven't done anything for us. They always want something else. A man never stops wanting. Which one of you guys have stopped wanting? You've been utterly satisfied, and then you don't have a wanter anymore. Commercial comes on, some cool thing pops up on a TV, but you don't want that. Because you are utterly, completely, totally satisfied. What's wrong with your wonder? It's broken. What is it tainted by? Sin, the fallenness of man. How do we get it under control? We bring it into submission to Christ. All things in submission to Christ. Bring every thought captive, right? Isn't that what the word says? Bring everything into obedience with Christ. So, 
So they're saying, Lord, you haven't done nothing for us. Verse 21, therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. That's a bad word, okay? If ever the Lord God Almighty is furious with me, and I, 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 I probably shouldn't even say if. I know there have been times that that's probably true, but that's not good. You don't want to stay in that place. That's a bad place. The Lord was furious, so a fire was kindled against Jacob. That phrase, a fire, means judgment. It means God's going to bring judgment. God's going to bring judgment. And anger also came up against Israel, because they did not believe in God. Now look, what he's saying is exactly what it sounds like. They're not trusting, they don't have faith in God. But ultimately, God's done all this stuff for them, and they're not loyal. God's standing right over there. I can see him. There's the pillar. There's the cloud. There's the water gushing out of the rock. I woke up in the morning and there's my bread. I have everything that I need in God. But I don't want him. I don't want him. I have fallen in love with his gifts. But I have not fallen in love with the giver. And so I don't want him. Doesn't matter what he does. I don't want him. And that's what it means when it says they did not believe in him. They did not believe. They did not trust in his salvation, in his ability to save. Yet he, God, had commanded the clouds above. He opened the doors of heaven. (coughs) He rained down manna on them to eat. He gave them of the bread of heaven. That's what God always calls it. God always called what the people called manna, bread from heaven. So when you get to John chapter 6 and Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but I, I am the bread from heaven. I'm the one. I'm the truth, the sustaining power of God that God poured out on his people. And so that's what he's laying out for him. Look, God gave you what you need. He gave everything. He opened up the heavens. When's the last time it rained bread for you guys? <clears throat> yeah, never. Never for me neither. And I, I like angel food cake. So it says, verse 25, men ate angels food. He sent them food to the full. So did the people ever lack anything that they needed? No. What did they lack? What they wanted. But they never lacked what they needed. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust. Now except for that I know how this story ends. I would say that would be a good thing. I like meat. I don't know the last time I ate a vegetable. Uh, I have always said cows eat grass that's a vegetable so I'm a vegetarian because I only eat cows but he makes it rain meat like dust (laughs) yeah a lot of bacon feathered fowl like the sand of the sea so he brings in the quail and he let them fall in the middle of their camp all around their dwelling so the people are complaining we want meat we want meat so God's okay now remember earlier it said he's furious he's kindled the fire he's bringing judgment so he makes it rain 
quail. And the quail come deep. Now the camp of Israel is an encampment that holds probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million people. So if you can imagine how big a place that is. Covered 3 feet deep with quail. That's a lot of quail. Hard to move around. But you said you want to meet. So God said, all right. He let them fall in the camp. So they ate and were well filled. For he gave them their own desire. You see that phrase? He gave them not his desire. Not what he wanted for them. He gave them their own desire. When God brings judgment, that's how he does it. What is hell? God giving people what they want. I don't want you, God. I don't have nothing to do with you. I don't want to serve you. I don't want to follow you. That's what the place called hell is. Separation from God. You want your desires fulfilled? God says, okay. He gave them their own desire. That was his judgment. That was his judgment. He poured it out on them. He gave them what they wanted. They ate and filled. They were not deprived of their craving. Another word for craving, their lust. They not deprive their lust, their desire. All we want, this is we all we want is some meat. Give us some meat. So they, they eat the meat. But it says, But while the food was still in their mouth, the wrath of God came against them, slew the stoutest of them, and struck them down, struck down the choice men of Israel. It's funny because when I look at that, <coughs> I think, just just want you to picture it. The winds blow, and all of a sudden, if I'm, if I'm out in the woods, and the wind starts blowing, and a huge swarm of quail come in and die at my feet, three foot deep, I am not thinking, lunch. <laughs> Are you? Are you going, oh, look. This thing just died right here in front of me. I think I'll eat it. So they just start eating this, all the piles of dead quail. Man, I would rather shoot my own food, thank you very much. But dead quail, they start eating a dead quail. I don't, maybe there's something wrong with the quail. <coughs> no shotguns. They, they had slings. So they, <coughs> they eat up the quail. God sends a plague. Whether it's something that was in the quail, something that was in the birds. Because it's the people who ate the meat that got sick. So the, the plague comes upon the people. He says, I, I filled their mouth with meat and sent leanness to their souls. Because they didn't want God. They just wanted what they wanted. They wanted their desires utterly and totally filled. So it says in verse 32, in spite of this, they still sin. What's their sin? They didn't repent. Look, if I said to God, God, I just want meat, and meat fell out of the sky, and I ate the meat and got sick, I'm going to the Lord. Uh, sorry. Forgive me. It's one of the things that comes up over and over again in the book of Revelation is the judgment of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world that they would not repent. They won't repent. They, never, they won't change their hearts. They're so angry and frustrated toward God, they won't change their heart so they wouldn't repent and they did not believe in his works 
Okay, these are the same guys that meat just fell all around them, three foot deep. Bread, water, there's God over there in the cloud, there's God over there in the pillar of fire. They don't believe, they don't want him. They're rejecting him. What they want is their own desire, their own craving. So therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. That's what happens to the discontented soul who doesn't want God. They're going to spend their years in futility. I can't even tell you how many people I've heard that story from. Want to go back and do it again. I'd do things different. I'd I'd change this or I'd change that. I lived my life out like Solomon. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Everything's empty. Nothing has value. Futility. Life is futile. Years lived in fear. When he slew them, then they sought him. So now he lays out this repentance. So when they all got sick, (coughs) people started looking toward the Lord. And they returned. And they sought earnestly for God. So they came back. They, they saw the hard things that were going on around them. The difficult things. Maybe they're questioning God. What are you doing? What's happening? And so they come back to God and they seek Him. In Hosea chapter 5 verse 15 it says this. God says, I will return again to my place. I like that phrase in Hosea by the way. Because when God says that in Hosea, He hadn't been here yet. I like to see this as, as what Jesus is saying. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Till they repent. He's talking about the nation of Israel. I'm going to go home. I'll go to heaven until they acknowledge their offense. Then, when they do that, they will seek my face. And in their affliction, they will earnestly seek See, God allows the hardship and hard things that happen in our life because it drives us to Him. That's one of the ways we're broken. We don't learn other ways. We all learn from the school of hard knocks, right? That's how we learn. That's how we're made. That's how we're bent. And so God says, when this happened, they sought me. Then they remembered that God was their rock. And the most high God was their redeemer. That God's the one that can take our situations and get it straight. Get things put back together. But verse 36 says, Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. And they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. We've heard that phrase before, right? So what's he saying? Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen says a similar thing. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me they get, they say the right words but it's not here it's just in the lips what good is lip service it's not very good you can tell what a man truly loves what he loves he praises if you don't praise God he don't love God because if you love it you praise it every single thing in your life whatever you love You praise, you talk about, you want to tell other people about it. You even will try to bring people to your side. You love Coke, you're going to tell a Pepsi person to get off of Pepsi and get on the Coke. Why are you going to do that? Because you love Coke. Isn't it funny how we can do that with Coke? Or we can do that with a 
our favorite brand of beer. We can do that with our favorite kind of ice cream. Or we can do that with our favorite whatever. But we don't do it with Christ. What does that say? They draw near to me with their lips. But their heart, that's far from me. So their heart was not steadfast, nor were they faithful. But he, God, in contrast to the unfaithfulness of mankind, being full of compassion. Isn't it good news that God is love? One of the attributes of God is love, that's good news. If, if, if that wasn't one of his attributes, we'd be done. Every one of us. He's full of compassion. He forgave their iniquity. He did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. The Bible says in, in 1 Thessalonians that we as believers are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word for wrath in the New Testament is the word orge. It's God's predisposed judgment for sin. If God is going to judge fallen man, broken man, lost man for their sin, he poured that judgment on his son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus Christ bears that burden on himself. So God's not going to pour out his wrath on us. We argue about it any way you want. You cannot argue that verse. God will not pour out his wrath on us. Ever. It was poured out on Christ. Won't get poured out on us. So, he's never poured out his whole wrath. Book of Revelation talks about seven bowls of the wrath of God where within in those seven bowls, all his wrath, all his judgment is complete. It means there will be a day he pours it all out. He stores it up now, according to Romans. The sons of disobedience are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. <clears throat> but he's, the Lord is saying here, he didn't pour it all out. For he remembered that they were but flesh. You see that phrase? He remembered that they were but flesh. I love that phrase because in Psalm 103, <coughs> about somewhere between verse 11 and 14, what the Lord says is the same phrase. That, that as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us. He remembers our frame that we are but dust. We're dirt clods. How much do you expect out of a dirt clod? When's the last time you went outside, seen a dirt clod on the ground and said, man, that dirt clod should get up and do something. It's a mess up here. No, we don't think that way, do we? Because we don't expect much out of a dirt clod. So you have the same thing being expressed in the Psalms about mankind. God says, I have compassion on mankind because I remember he's flesh. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the Lord expressing his compassion, his willingness to forgive, his willingness to hold back his wrath. <clears throat> um, he says at the end of verse 39, a breath that passes away and does not come again. But verse 40, how often they provoked him in the wilderness. How often and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. What does that mean? They limited God. How did they limit him? God can't do this. Well, God can't do this. They limit him. They limit his 
his reign in their life. They limit his rule. They limit his power. They limit him. We don't want to be like that. We want to limit God. We got to learn to be okay with God being God and doing what God does. And recognizing that we're not God. And nor are we able to understand and even see like God sees. So we don't want to limit the Holy One of Israel. It says they did not remember His power. They didn't remember what He's able to do. The day when He redeemed them from the enemy, how He delivered them, when He worked His signs in Egypt and His wonders in the field of Zom, turned the rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. Remember, He's talking about the plagues now in Egypt. Uh, he sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the caterpillar. Remember, the locust comes in. He uh, And their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail, their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague. Now he's talking about the destruction of the firstborn. He destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep. And he guided them in the wilderness like a flock. We're back to how God delivered the people. How he led them. He led them on safely so that they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. So he took care of his people. He took care of his providence and his protection. He took care of those who came against them. He brought them to his holy border, the mountain which is his right hand, uh, which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. So he gave them the land. He brought them into the promised land. He pushed all the enemies out. He gave them victory. He walked with them all the way through. But it says, yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. See the same thing happening again. This is a new generation. We left the other generation that wandered in the wilderness. Now we're talking about the generation that's in the promised land. But that generation that's in the promised land did the same stuff. They forget him. They're not loyal to him. They don't remember the things that he did for them. (coughs) He says they turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. For they were turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger in their high places. That's where they worshipped false idols. And they moved him to jealousy with their carved images. That's where they were making their false idols. When God heard this, (coughs) he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. That's the northern kingdom. He's not talking about a united kingdom now. He's talking about the northern kingdom. He's saying they're gone into idolatry. So now the issue is not the same in the wilderness. It was their own desires, the things that they want. Now they're worshiping other gods. They're giving their, their love that he is asking for from his people to gods who are not real, who cannot save, who have done nothing for them. But they're willing to give their love to those things and not give it to God. The issue is still the same. Why not? Because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because they love their sin. 
They love the freedom to do the things that they want to do and, and to fulfill the desires that they have, but they don't want to surrender and submit to God. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. So he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent that he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory to the enemy's hand. So the nation goes into captivity. He lets it all go, the place where he used to dwell. Ultimately, the temple's destroyed, the tabernacle's gone, the glory has departed. And the glory stays departed for the next 400 years until Jesus comes walking one day into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple, he chases out the money changers. That's the first time the glory of God came back to the land since it left. Jesus came back and he said, My house shall be a house of prayer. Now he comes back again toward the end of three years of ministry. He cleanses the temple again. He says, My house shall be a house of prayer. He undergoes four days of examination leading up to the cross. And when he leaves the last time, he leaves the temple. He says to Jerusalem, to the scribes and the Pharisees, See, your house is left to you desolate. God said, I'm here four days. You've examined me four days. You found the things that I've said to be true, but you still won't come. So I'm leaving. And your house is empty. God's not there. God's not there no more. It says in verse 62, he also gave his people over to the sword was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men. <clears throat> their maidens were not given to marriage. The priests fell by the sword. And their widows made no lamentation. It's, it's heartache, going into bondage, the, everything. They're losing it all. Then the Lord awoke from his sleep. Like a mighty man who shouts because of his wine, he beat back his enemies and put them to a perpetual reproach. God didn't bring them to a full destruction. There has always been a remnant, a group. God doesn't utterly destroy. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah. So from whom does Messiah come? Judah. When the nation split, Israel went north into idolatry. Where did God's presence stay? South with who? Judah. I chose Judah. Mount Zion, which he loved. That's another phrase for Jerusalem. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. He also chose David, his servant. So he's got a line, a line through whom Messiah will come. And he took him from the sheepfolds. Why? Because he wants him to be a shepherd. He wants him to shepherd his people. From following the ewes... Uh, that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. It looks to the promise of David, but the reason it looks to the promise of David is because he's looking for a greater than David. What does David become a symbol for throughout the Old Testament? The son of David. Who's the son of David? Messiah. Messiah is going to come. How's he going to come? He's going to come like a shepherd. He's going to come like a shepherd. Why? Because the 23rd Psalm says, Who is my shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. 
What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd who does what? Gives his life for the sheep. He gives his life. He will shepherd his people. So we see the history and the struggle with repentance and want to walk right and be right in Psalm 78. When we look back and we wonder how lame they can be, we also need to look inward and say, why am I being so lame? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but I do. They didn't have the power that I have. I do. Christ died and sent the Spirit so that we might have the strength we need to be who God's asking us to be. So we just all whittles down to one thing. The same thing that was their problem can, can be our problem. What is that? Repentance. Repentance. If I'm wrong, own it. And then go to God. What did the Bible tell us? It said he's compassionate and he wants to forgive. What if I got to repent a hundred times a day? Good, you're talking to God a lot. It's okay. <coughs> it's okay. We repent. We don't get tired of it. We just keep going before him. God will give us, he will grant us what we need to overcome the struggles that we have. But we got to be willing to do that. We got to be, we, we be humble enough to bow the knee before our God and King and allow Him to have His way in us. And we'll find ourselves not in Psalm 78. It's kind of a drag to be for the Lord to be furious, right? We want, we want to be living in the right place with God. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.